From noon until three o'clock, the whole land was covered with darkness. About three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He said, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Some of those standing there heard Jesus cry out. They said, he's calling for Elijah. Right away, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick. He offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. After Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he died. At that moment, the temple curtain was torn in two, top to bottom. From top to bottom, the earth shook, rocks split, tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus was raised from the dead. They went into the holy city. Here were appeared to many people. The Roman commander and those guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified. That exclaimed, he was surely the son of God. Awesome. Let's give it up for Grace again. Well done. Fantastic. So good. Good morning, City Church. I am Stephen. I am not Pastor Matt, in case you're wondering. This is Bailey. This is also not Pastor Matt. Um, they are at the family weekend retreat, AKA, oh, camp family, a.k.a. vacation, right? No, just kidding. But we are the real people who actually showed up to the church today. Again, another joke. Um, we, we are really uh, glad to be back uh, with you guys. Uh, if you don't know who we are, um, we'd love to uh, maybe talk to you after service and say hi. We call City Church our home, but we also do missions uh, stuff all over East Africa and City Church and Pastor Matt have been such an instrumental part of what we do. Um, Bailey is going to greet you guys and pray for us, and then we're going to look at God's Word together this morning. Yeah, we bring you greetings from East Africa. We just got back this past week, and this is the honest truth. Anytime we stand, most of the time, there's probably a couple times we missed it, but most of the time when we stand in front of a group of leaders or church congregation, we greet them um, on your behalf. And several of the main leaders that we work with know Pastor Matt and Lindsay. A few have even visited in the States, and they're always so excited. You guys have specifically helped with the church planning school in Burundi. We were just there two weeks ago now. There's 36 students um, enrolled this year, and the vision and the mission of this house have helped field so many of these pastors. Yeah, so how many city churches do we have? I think there's at least three. Yeah. There's city churches in Africa. So <laughs> they love the mission of this house. They love the vision. They love even the mission statement that we have that we say at the end of every service, right? Wherever you are, be the gospel and just discipling your people to live on mission, to be the hands of Jesus. Actually, they say, Aho murihose okay, well, thank you for the <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma, so English is my primary language. Stephen, as you will see this morning, has a big variety of languages, but not as many as there are in the world. Because no. you said there's how many? 7,200? 7,200. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's working on it. Um, <laughs> he has a good word this morning, so I just want to pray and let him preach to the rest of us this morning. Father, I just thank you for your presence this morning, that we get to gather together, that we can be called the sons and the daughters of God. Yes, Lord. What a privilege. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our Savior. As we reflect about your death this morning, May our hearts understand more the price that you paid, yeah. the love, the extravagant love yeah. that you had, that Father, you sent your Son, that Jesus, you gave your life, and that you, you gave us your Holy Spirit, that we would never be alone, that we didn't have to be there 2,000 years ago, that we don't have to fly to some special location in Israel to meet with you, 
that you're meeting with us here right now in this moment this morning. Yeah. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would reveal the Father, that you'd reveal Jesus. You'd make your word come alive inside of all of us this morning. Yeah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' amen. name. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, it is great to be here with you guys. I am uh, really excited to have the opportunity to share God's word with you. Uh, we are in a series here at City Church called The uh, Shadow of the Cross, and different speakers have been unpacking this journey of uh, the Lent journey. I didn't confess this in the first service, but I, growing up in East Africa, I spent most of my time over there. Very few churches actually celebrated Lent. And so it wasn't until I was in my uh, teenage years, I'd hear people talk about it. I thought they meant the dryer trap, you know, the Lent. <laughs> and so I, you know, Lent is not that, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Lent is a time of reflection, a time of um, entering into the suffering of what Christ has done so that we can prepare our hearts and um, make sure that we are in a place to uh, adequately embrace what the message of Easter and resurrection is all about. So that's kind of the uh, series that we're in, and today we're going to uh, talk about the death of Christ, all right, the death of Christ. Grace already did a fantastic job of uh, reading our passage for us. Um, if I had to give a title to this message today, I would call it, Are You Sure That's What He Said? Are You Sure That's What He Said? All right. So let's, let's look at this passage, and this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to go expository. So what does that mean? I'm going to try to bring out all of the different uh, details, and I think that sometimes it's good to have the general thematic uh, approach to God's Word. Other times it's really important that you uh, zone in or uh, zoom in on some of the specific details that are being communicated, and I think that this is one of those passages where an expository pro approach will really help us. Um, what Matthew's going to tell us here is that um, this are, these are the final three hours of Jesus' life, okay? The final three hours of Jesus' life. And backing up just a little bit in uh, chapter 26 and 27, Matthew's going to set up a framework for us. And the framework kind of correlates to this idea of Lent, all right? And so um, there's 10 stages that Matthew's going to present. And these identify what Christ went through in the moments uh, and days leading up to his death on the cross. So stage one is, uh, starts in Matthew 26, 37. It's Christ's agony. And it begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the word tells us that he's literally sweating drops of blood. He's pleading with the Father for his will to be done. And yet, if there's any way that it can happen, and besides crucifixion, he's asking God for that to happen. Stage two, um, Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest his friends, one of the 12, a guy by the name of Judas. He's arrested. He's uh, put on religious trial uh, before the uh, Sanhedrin. Uh, Matthew tells us, he gives us three verbs to describe what happens to Christ. He said he was spit, struck, and slapped. And so you already have this understanding that there is a lot of suffering in store for Christ during this, uh, these, these events. Stage number three, Jesus is delivered over to Pilate. This would be the civil trial. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with it. Pilate sends it over to Herod. Herod doesn't want anything to do with it. Herod sends it back to Pilate, right? They're playing a game of uh, judicial ping pong. And Pilate says, you know, okay, if that's how it's going to be, then I'm going to uh, release Barabbas and Jesus will be crucified. Stage four, Jesus is flogged by the Romans. Uh, flogging was the Roman uh, means of punishment, basically nine strands of leather. Uh, em embedded with bone and glass so that it would have the maximum damaging effect when it would hit the human back. It would literally um, viscerate the uh, flesh and totally uh, cause all kinds of agony. 
to the individual. Stage five, the Roman soldiers have a scarlet robe that they put on Jesus and then they begin to mock him. Oh, king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? They also fashion a crown of thorns. Uh, The crown of thorns are then placed on Christ's head and then it says they begin to mock him and strike him, to hit him. The idea being that when the fist of the soldiers would hit the crown of thorns, it would actually press the thorns even deeper into his brow. So you can see the physical pain and torment he's going through. Stage number six, they lead him away to crucify him. He has to carry his own beam somehow tied to his shoulders. Stage number seven, they lay the beam down on the ground. They crucify him. The Roman means of crucifixion would be that you take the nails and you put it in the wrist somewhere between the ulna and the radius so that the bone structure of a human being holds the physical body in place in a vertical suspended position. Stage number eight, they hurl insults at him. And by this point, you can imagine he's a bloody mess. His back has been viscerated. He has a crown of thorns on him. To add uh, injury to insult, they strip him naked and he is now exposed for all of the people passing by. And then we get to our passage that Grace read for us this morning, stages nine and stages 10. Stage nine, Jesus is going to cry out. You're going to see the emotional anguish when he says, why have you forsaken me? Stage number 10, Jesus is going to cry out again, and this time he's going to forfeit his spirit and die. Now, verse 46 and 47 at the beginning of this passage are really, really interesting to me from both a linguistic and a communicative standpoint. In Matthew, these are Jesus's final pre-resurrection words, and Matthew is going to focus in on Christ's statement that shows the humanity and the isolation Jesus experienced on the cross. Eli, Eli. Lama Sabachthani. Now, I was joking with uh, Grace before first service. I told her that when I wrote those words on my iPhone, the predictive text came up with Lama. It had L-L-A-M-A and a little picture of a Lama. So I have a Lama here in my notes today on where Jesus is saying this. But notice, before you get to that, Matthew is very deliberate in verse 45 to talk about total darkness covering the earth from uh, for three-hour period from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. And he's going to describe a solar eclipse. Now, this is interesting to me because I believe it provides an apologetic for the entire context of this passage. Uh, when you study church history, both Eusebius and Origen, in writing some of their uh, um, apologetics for the faith, they mention a certain Roman historian by the name of Phlegon, all right? And Phlegon is going to make this quote where he tells us that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great eclipse of the sun greater than had ever been known before. For at the sixth hour, the day was changed into night and the stars were seen in the heavens. An earthquake earthquake, not an earth cake, (laughs) occurred in Bithynia and overthrew a great part of the city of Nicaea. All right. So the fourth year of this 202nd Olympiad would be July of 32 to June of 33. All right. So this is a pagan Roman historian who is giving us very specific historiographical information. Uh, The church history also records a guy by the name of Dionysus. He was a pagan Greek judge who was in the city of Helopolis, which is in Egypt, about 255 miles southwest of Jerusalem during this same eclipse. He was so amazed by the solar eclipse and the terror it produced that day that he wrote this, either the God of nature is suffering terribly or the machine of the entire world is tumbling into ruin. 
Interestingly, years later in Athens, he heard a man by the name of Paul preaching on the Areopagus Hill. And when Paul talked about how Jesus died in a time when there was no daylight, he remembered the entry that he had written about all of the, 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 the God of nature suffering terribly. It so convicted him that he repented of his sins, gave his life to Christ, and Paul ended up appointing him as the bishop of Athens. Now you say, what's the point? Well, I think the point is this. So often when it comes from a humanistic or naturalistic viewpoint, the accusation against Christians is that faith is the absence of reason and the absence of evidence. I would suggest quite to the contrary, when you begin to unpack some of the accounts that we have been studying as we have been on this journey here at City Church, you're going to discover the exact opposite. You're going to discover that this is one of the most historically referenced and researched events that has happened in all of world history. Just to give you a quick example, more than 5,000 extant, that means existing manuscripts are are out there that describe Jesus as both uh, dying and uh, being crucified and resurrected. By contrast, Julius Caesar, nobody doubts that Julius Caesar existed. There's less than 50 known uh, manuscripts that exist. And so very quickly, you just have this picture that Matthew's trying to help us understand. This isn't just some kind of abstract pie in the sky kind of faith thing that people who are Christians have to blindly believe when they follow you know, somebody on stage. Rather, Matthew's trying to tell us this is a documented event that occurred in world history, Okay. This moves us into this idea here now of the context. So the stars are out, it's dark, um, it's somewhere between July of 32 and June of 33, we're not sure exactly when, and now Matthew's going to get out his iPhone, which of course he doesn't really have an iPhone, but he's going to zoom in on Jesus, right? And so here's the man that we've already described, he's suffering on the cross, right? And so Matthew's going to record the, the cry, and the cry that Jesus is going to utter, Eli, Eli! Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's interesting to me that Matthew interprets what's being said for us. He puts it uh, into uh, English. Well, he didn't really put it into English, but he interprets it into Greek so that it could be interpreted into English. And this idea of interpretation reminds me of a skit that uh, my brother and I used to do. Uh, We both grew up in Kenya. We were both born in Kenya. And so we would pretend that we were in church and I would be the African translator and he would be the fiery Southern evangelist visiting from America using localized vernacular in his preaching, all right? And so the skit went something like this. My brother would say, God will sweep over you, brothers and sisters. And then I would interpret it and say, God will hit you with a broom, my dear brothers and sisters. (laughs) And then my brother would say, church, it's time to catch on fire for Jesus. And I would say, Christians, light yourselves on fire for Jesus. Hallelujah. (laughs) And then my brother would say, if you do this, you will find yourself walking in the promised land. And I would say, you will find yourself dead and going to be with Jesus. Oh, praise God. (laughs) And right away, you kind of get the idea in that little skit. I don't have time to do all of it for you this morning. That interpretation is really, really important. Would you agree with me? And so we see what's happening here, and we have this idea of a linguistic lens, okay? A linguistic lens with a multilingual suffering Savior. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And if you're like me, you ask yourself the question, what in the world is he saying and what language is that? 
My wife already stole my thunder and said, told you earlier that ethnologists say that there are about 7,200 languages on planet Earth today. Uh, we know that this is Aramaic, which would be the lingua franca of first century Palestine. It's actually still spoken in some of the mountains of northern Iraq and southwestern uh, Turkey. Okay, so it is still a, 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 a living language. And so Jesus, this would be his heart language. So, you know, usually when someone's in pain, whatever comes out of their mouth would be their heart language, right? And so Aramaic it is. But we also know that Jesus was able to stand in the synagogue on, in Luke chapter 4, and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read, the, uh, he read in Hebrew, which is the language that was used for the Old Testament, right? So now you have Jesus up to language number two. We have him in Aramaic and Hebrew. But the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. It's the language that was, you know, kind of the trade language of the day. In John 12, when Philip tells Jesus that the Greeks want to see him, the implication is that Jesus is very much conversant in Greek culture and language. All right, so there's language number three. But finally, Rome is in power, and any communication with Roman authorities is almost certainly in Latin, right? Romans spoke Latin. So when Jesus is talking with Pilate, it's either in Greek or Latin, but most Bible theologians say it was probably Latin. So here you have a picture of a quadlingual Christ. Isn't that cool? And I think this is why John 19, 20 goes into detail to tell us that the sign above Jesus at the cross is written in three languages. It's written in Latin, it's written in Greek, and it's written in Aramaic so that anyone passing by, regardless of their linguistic background and ethnic background, would be able to understand what was happening at the cross that day, the King of the Jews. You say, what's the big deal? Well, for me, there's several implications. I think implication number one is it keeps us from cultural arrogance. It's so easy to think Jesus was an American and that Jesus only spoke English because our Bible is written in English and the messages are in English and church is in English and everything we do is in English. And we have to remind ourselves by backing up one moment and say, you know what? Actually, Jesus was not an American and Jesus did not speak English while he was on the planet at that time, right? But then I think it also reminds us of one of the themes of the entire New Testament, which is the idea of Jesus being a global savior. It reminds us that Jesus loves the nations of the world and that he speaks the heart language of every single person on our planet today. That's why John tells us in Revelation 7, 9, when he gets out his iPhone and takes a picture of what's happening in heaven, he says that he heard people from every tribe and tongue and they're worshiping the lamb. In other words, the people groups retain their linguistic autonomy and their linguistic distinctiveness. And so John, um, John, Matthew's given us this beautiful picture that I would say is of a multilinguistic, cross-cultural, incarnational sacrifice and savior who knows how to speak to every heart in life in this room today. Wow, what a cool story. What a cool thought. And that takes us then to the communicative lens, right? So the linguistic lens, but I think the communicative lens is the danger of presuppositions, the danger of presuppositions. Now, I have to apologize up front and say, I like big words. <laughs> I have presuppositions. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? You lost me with the incarnational piece there. I apologize. It's my message. I'm going to use big words. When you get invited to preach, you can use whatever words you want to use. Okay, but these are the words that I got to go with today because I think that it best articulates what I'm trying to say. So the question is this, what is a presupposition? Well, obviously it comes from the verb to presuppose. 
um, which I guess is also a big word, but it just means that you suppose something is going to happen before it happens. It's a predetermined bias or preference of what is supposed to happen according to my interpretation. So a presupposition says that I have my particular way of how I think things are supposed to go, and then I'm going to project that onto an event that's about to happen moving forward, all right? It's kind of like a spiritualized version of the game of telephone, okay? Anybody ever played telephone before? You know, you have like the little phrase that you whisper in somebody's ear and it's like a green bean fell off a truck, right? And then the next person's supposed to like share it to the next person, to the next person. And by the time you get to the end of the line, it's usually there's like no correlation whatsoever between what started off and what the person thinks that the person is saying. Or maybe another example would be the idea of putting a bubble over someone's head, like in a cartoon, right? And you project what the other person is thinking or saying, right? Before they've even opened their mouth or before they've even done anything. Now, if you, you know, if you do this in relationships, it doesn't work out so well. Um, particularly in marriage, you can ask my wife for some examples. I've messed this up many times where I presuppose that she's going to say something that she's not actually trying to communicate and then you get the idea, right? So it can just be really, really dangerous. And I, as I was putting this together, the question came to me, is it possible to put a bubble over Christ's head and assume that we know what he's thinking? Or worse, to put words in his mouth that he isn't speaking at all? And I think that this passage is going to illustrate the danger of spiritual presuppositions. Now, look at what Jesus said, because this is really intriguing to me. He says, Eli, Eli. Now, we know that El is the Hebrew word for God, right? Um, El Shaddai, Elohim, El Elyon, El Roy, you see here that same repetition of El. The I on the end of it is just means my. It's the Semitic way of showing possession. So if you speak Amharic in this place today, you can say Abi. The I on the end is my father. If you speak Arabic, it's also Abi, my father. So this idea of Eli, it's this idea of my God, right? My God. What is striking to me is that this is the only time in all of the synoptic gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his father. The idea is that there is now a relational break and separation occurring in the Trinity for the first time in eternity. Try and wrap your mind around that one. Whew. Jesus feels cut off from the Father's presence and abandoned by the Spirit's abiding peace. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, my God, my God, Peter, Peter, oh my goodness, he, he, he abandoned me. He doesn't say, my God, Judas betrayed me. No, it's this idea that there is now a relational gap between father and son that has never existed in eternity past or in any time moving forward. So it's not just that Jesus is suffering physically. We already talked about a lot of those dynamics today, which, and it was horrific what he went through. In fact, the um, theologians tell us that the cross was so horrific, they had to coin a particular word in English for it. It is excruciating. It comes from the Latin word excrucis, ex being out of, crucis being the cross. So that in other words, there was not a word adequate enough to describe how difficult the physical suffering of Christ. So they came up with, it's excruciating. It's so painful. It can only be comparable to when someone is crucified on a cross. Excruciating. And yet it's not just the physical pain, it's the emotional pain and the relational separation and the isolation and the psychological trauma that this would occur for the son of, that would create in the son of God. For the first time ever, he no longer has this intimate, close relationship with his father. And so Matthew tells us that the only way he could describe it is he cried out in a loud voice. He cried out. You can just hear him. He's suffering. He can barely, hardly even breathe. And he musters up enough strength just to say, my God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? Now, I think you, we have to pause and ask ourselves the question, why? Why such emotional anguish? Why, why endure the hostility of scorners and mockers and such physical pain? And of course, from a theological standpoint, Jesus has just taken on the sin of humanity past and the sin of humanity present, as well as the sin of humanity future. In this one moment, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what powerful news. What an incredible message that the one who had never known sin takes upon himself your sin and my sin and the sin of every single person who has ever lived on planet earth. And in that moment, because the sin is now a relational barrier, it's now a spiritual impediment between he and the father, there's this distance that's created. And so Charles Spurgeon addresses the question of why, and he puts it this way. We can imagine the answer to Jesus's question, why? And the father turns to him and says, because my son, you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners. You who have never known sin have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and receive my just wrath upon sin and sinners. Yet you do this because of your great love and because of my great love. Then the father might give the son a glimpse of his reward. The righteously robed multitude of his people clothed on heaven's golden streets, all of them singing their redeemer's praise, all of them chanting the name of Yahweh, and of the lamb. A beautiful picture of what Christ has done. And yet Matthew wants to focus in now on the Jews and the crowd. And remember we said that there's this communicative lens. And it's interesting that what Matthew is going to identify here is that instead of empathizing with the death of Christ's physical pain and his emotional isolation in this moment, someone in the crowd is going to hear what Jesus says on the cross and they're going to put their own particular spin on it, right? And I don't know why I do this, but whenever I read about conversations that occur in the New Testament, I think of them in British English, okay? So I don't, it's weird, it's weird, but just bear with me here. So Jesus is on the cross and he goes, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And one of the guys in the crowd turns his butt and he goes, oh, he's saying Elijah. Did you hear that? It's Elijah, right? And so you have to begin to grapple with why is Matthew telling us what someone interpreted that they think Jesus is actually saying? Now, we have to understand that the Jews believed that Elijah would come prior to the Messiah, right? So, and this would be a sign to the Jewish nation that a political savior figure had arrived who would have overthrow the Romans. So this guy or this group of guys or people, whoever they are, is actually twisting Jesus's suffering and sorrow and making a political statement out of it. Sounds like 2020, 2021, 2022 America, right? And what they're really saying is this, hey, Jesus, if you really are who you say that you are, then prove it by sending Elijah and validating all your claims, right? Let's see if Elijah's going to come. Do you see it? It's a presupposition. They're presupposing the way that they understand the Old Testament is how Christ has to directly fulfill everything that they anticipate is going to happen according to their particular preference. They are presupposing that the Messiah is a political figure and that Elijah is going to be resurrected prior to the Messiah. We know from Matthew eleven fourteen that Jesus tells the crowd, if you are able to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. So there's no interpretive challenges here for us who are believers. So what we have to look at here is now this idea that this crowd is forcing their political and theological viewpoint into Jesus's mouth. Presupposition. As I was preparing for this message, I was in Burundi, 
Matt asked me to, Pastor Matt asked me to preach, I kept asking myself this question. Is it possible that we are still doing the same thing in our lives and in our world today? We approach Jesus and his word from our particular preference and personal presupposition, and we try to make him fit into it. He says, Eli, we hear Elijah. <laughs> he says, suffering is a blessing. We say, rebuke that in Jesus' name. He says, take up your cross. We say, absolutely, provided that it leads me into a place of personal aggrandizement. He says, forgive them. We say, just as soon as they apologize and admit that they were wrong. He says, die to yourself. And we say, no problem, provided all of my dreams and spiritualized fantasies are fulfilled on my timetable. He says, turn the other cheek. And we say, sure, Lord, right after I give them a full piece of what they have coming, I'd be glad to turn the other cheek. He says, walk in unity. We say, great, as long as everyone votes like me and insists on vaccines or resists vaccines, depending on my particular preference. Would you notice with me here in this passage that the problem isn't that we don't hear God speaking? The guy heard what Jesus was saying, and so do we. It's that we twist what we hear. We fit it into our own preferred narrative. And can I just suggest today that if you want to grow in your ability and capacity to be able to hear the voice of God, it's not so much this idea of, oh, I need a new word, I need a new word, I need a new word. So often, it's not the new word that's troubling you. It's that you haven't obeyed the previous word that the Lord gave you, right? And so I think so often right now, what's happening in the body of Christ is we're losing the primary source. What do I mean by that? I mean, we hear a pastor say something and we take that word as if it's God's effective word for us in all situations. And what happens is we miss out on going back directly to who Christ is and letting Jesus speak for Jesus. And I think that another huge challenge here, at least for me, is that when you approach Jesus with presuppositions, presuppositions never come alone. Do you know what presuppositions come with? They come with expectations. And so you show up to Jesus and you say, Jesus, this is my presupposition. A, B, C, D, implying that A has an expectation, B has an expectation, praying in tongues, and C has another expectation, right? And what happens when Jesus doesn't fulfill the expectations is we say, well, I tried that Christianity thing and it didn't work. No, you didn't try Christianity, you tried your presuppositions, and so I think that this passage, Matthew's trying to force us to come back to the primary source of the word of God and say, let God's word speak directly for itself. And of course, this implies the importance of correct hermeneutics and knowing how to interpret it according to what the biblical authors wanted to communicate. But at some point, if we're not careful, our lives will get off track because we try to fit Jesus into our particular preference. Whew. Can I remind you today that Jesus doesn't fit his kingdom into your perceptions or your preferences or your opinions or even your political persuasions? He is the son of the living God. And when he speaks, ours is not to reason why. Ours is to respond and say, yes, sir, you are the Lord. I will obey. So let's get back to the source, right? I think that's probably one of the challenges that Matthew's asking us to grapple with. 
And then we move to this idea of, that stage nine, we move now to stage 10, which is this idea of the death of Christ, all right? The death of Christ in verse 50, where it says that he gives up his spirit. And there's, Matthew's going to record the surrounding events that accompany the death of Christ. And this, this part is just fascinating. I mean, this part you could preach an entire series of messages on, but the first surrounding event or events is an earthquake and resurrection. And I think, honestly, you could put an S on the end of the resurrection. It's resurrections. Okay, And then the second event that Matthew is going to be very deliberate to record is this idea of the temple curtain has now been torn. All right, The temple curtain has now been torn. So you have the first supernatural occurrence, which is happening. The Bible says that nearby graves start opening up as Jesus is dying, as the earth is shaking, and as darkness is over the land. Now, you may say, what in the world is this about? And I kind of scratch my head. I'm with you. I mean, this one is unbelievable to me, except that it's recorded in God's word, right? And I love to think about the fact that the only person that it seems didn't resurrect that day would have been Elijah because Elijah had already been taken to heaven and never actually had a physical death. So you have this idea here that at some point, someone comes to the door while Jesus is hanging on a tree outside, you know, the place called Golgotha, knocks on the door and they open the door and there's Uncle Isaiah, right? And here's Jeremiah the prophet. And you're like, what are you doing alive? Like, how in the world is this happening? And What is this about? The best answer that I can give is simply this. It's a foretaste of what is coming. If his sacrificial death has the immediate power to resurrect a few nearby tombs, what does the full expression of his sacrificial resurrection envision for all of humanity? Oh, come on, somebody. That's what we call the blessed hope of the church of Jesus Christ, that at some point down the road, the Lord will return and will rapture, will take to himself all of those who have fallen asleep. The Bible in Christ, the Bible talks about this resurrection of the dead that's going to occur. And so I think what Matthew's doing is giving us just a little bit of a snapshot. Yeah, there were a few tombs here and there. Isaiah came back, Jeremiah came back. It was pretty cool. But wait till you see the final installment. Wait till you see the final series. Wait till you see what happens when Jesus returns and all of the dead everywhere have resurrect in one glorious moment to meet with Christ in the sky. And then Matthew's going to switch with the switch to this idea of the curtain is now torn in two in the temple. Now this one, you, this one is just awesome to me because it speaks of access is now granted to all. Up to this point in redemptive history, and by that we mean the story of God's unfolding message in the Bible, Uh, if you trace it through the Jewish people, you quickly understand that redemptive history involved one person from one tribe in one nation once a year allowed to access God's presence. His name was the high priest, right? And if you study this out, he had to put on a little bell on his ankle, right? And then they would tie a rope a string to his leg, and then he would go into the the holy place, the most holy place, and once the curtain closed behind him, the other priests would be listening on the outside to hear if the jingle was still there, right? Jink, 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 jink. And as long as the jingle was still there, they knew, hey, he's alive and everything's good. But at some point, if there was some kind of violation of God's holiness because he hadn't made the right sacrifice or there was a specific sin that hadn't been atoned for, if the jink, jink stopped, then they knew that Yeah, he's no more, right? And so they take the rope and then they pull the guy back out. And remember, this only happens one time, once a year, one man that's allowed to go in and access God's direct presence. 
And Matthew says, hold on, I got some good news for you. He says, I'm going to tell you that when Jesus died and when this earthquake takes place and the darkness is over the land, it's not just that the Son of God was dying over here on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's that right in the middle of the capital city of the Jewish tradition and religion, the most sacred, holy of holy place, and the veil that kept the outsiders out and kept God in is now torn in half. And because of that, anyone, anywhere who will put their faith in Christ Jesus now has access to enter into the holy place. Isn't that awesome? Whew. And I think in that moment, the real purpose of the cross is revealed. It's not about overthrowing political systems or structures. It's not about Jesus offering a clever explanation to every accusation and misunderstanding. Rather, it's about dealing with the global sin problem that has isolated humanity from God. And what he deals with on the cross in terms of the relational disconnection and separation from his father is now the invitation for every one of us to have direct connection, relationship, and intimacy with God. Put it simply, the curtain is now open. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, it's not a slight rent through which we may see a little, but it is a rent from the top to the bottom. There is an entrance made for the greatest of sinners. And I have to pause there and say, thank God, because I fall in that category. The greatest of sinners. There's an entrance made for the greatest of sinners. If there had been only a small hole cut through it, the lesser offenders might have crept through. But what an act of abounding mercy is this, that the veil is rent in the midst, and not only so, but rent from top to bottom, so that the chief of sinners may find ample passage. If you're here today and sin still has control over your life, I have good news for you. At the cross of Calvary, the passageway has been made open. Because of what Christ did there and because of his blood, there is now access to the Father. Your sins can be forgiven and cleansed. And so then Matthew's going to take us to the, what I'm going to call the, uh, the closing snapshot. The closing snapshot. And while the Jewish bystanders are still mocking, Matthew shifts attention to the most unlikely people at the cross that day. And he's going to mention this idea of the Romans and the women, all right? The Romans and the women. Now, this is really remarkable to me because the Romans would be Gentiles. Can I ask a question today? How many of us are Gentiles in the room? All right, unless you have Jewish blood in your body, you're also a Gentile, okay? Just helping you uh, figure that out here. And so Matthew's going to consider or help us understand that he's being deliberate to create this tapestry for us that is going to include the Gentiles, okay? And it's interesting that the centurion's response in verse 44 is in stark contrast to the Jewish crowd. So the religious insiders who should have embraced Christ for who he was are mocking him and saying, let's see if Elijah comes. Come on, man, show us Elijah, right? And at the same time, you have a Roman, a Gentile from a pagan background, and he is witnessing the exact same events. But remember that the centurion doesn't speak Aramaic, so he doesn't know who Elijah was. He has no idea what Eli meant. He doesn't understand that there's a power struggle going on here between religious preconceptions and the kingdom of God. This whole conversation is going to bypass him, right? And yet he sees a man suffering on the tree, and he feels the earthquake. He sees the solar eclipse and darkness for three hours. He hears the other criminals heaping insults on him as they're also being crucified, and he sees the passerbys also insulting this man and his only conclusion which I think is so moving is this surely this is no regular man 
This man is deity. In fact, he sells us this, this man is the son of God. And you're like, what? You're a Gentile. You're a Roman. You're part of the oppressive system. It's not supposed to be you who gets this revelation. It's supposed to be the Jewish British folk over there, right? Talking with their accent. And I think it reminds us of this, that you don't have to have theological knowledge and insider information or soteriological insight or advanced spirituality or the right family pedigree to understand who Jesus is. The way has been made open regardless of your background, regardless of your educational preparation at this point in your life. At some point, Jesus isn't looking for all of these different pre-criteria. He's looking for the idea of, do you have faith in what he's done for you at Calvary? And so this moves us to the women. And what we have to know about women is that they are some of the most unlikely along with the Gentiles. In fact, women were considered property to be owned and possessed in the first century of Israel. Women did not have uh, rights in a court of law. She could not own land. In fact, there was a prayer that Jewish men would pray every morning when they would uh, wake up. And this carried on for several centuries. It was basically this, God I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, like that centurion. I thank you that I'm not a slave, and I thank you that I'm not a woman. Now imagine that this, and quickly you begin to understand how controversial Matthew's account would be, right? I mean, this is controversial. For the average Jewish man, a woman did not exist except for procreation, right? And Matthew is going to be deliberate and he's going to tell us that there were many women there. In fact, there was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph and James and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then a few verses later at the tomb, she's gonna describe how the two Marys go to make preparation and to try and figure out where they're burying Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 28, the resurrection story and, you know, spoiler alert, Jesus does actually raise from the dead. We're celebrating that in two weeks, right? But who announces that message? It's the women who were at the tomb. I mean, this would be mind-boggling for the average first century reader. They're like, what? The women? A Roman centurion? How can this be? And I think quickly you begin to understand the power and the importance of what is being communicated here. The way has now been made open. Ladies in the room today, the kingdom of God is now available to you. Gentiles in this place today, including myself, because of what Christ did at the cross of Calvary, you no longer have to get a PCR test and an antigen and get approval from the Israeli uh, interior committee in order to get permission to get a QR code to go land in Jerusalem to try and find Jesus at the temple. Instead, you have access directly in this moment to the presence of the Most High God. So Matthew's trying to help us understand that he's obsessed with society's most unlikely, because Jesus is obsessed with society's most unlikely. So this takes us to this final picture that you're gonna see behind me on the screen. It's Pastor Celestin. Bailey already mentioned the church planting school in Burundi that City Church helped us start in 2017, I believe. So far, more than 150 church planters have been trained. Uh, in the last four years, we've seen 68 churches now planted across the, uh, Burundi. And even more than that, we've now seen churches going across the border into Eastern Congo, which is why City Church is proliferating. We have City Church Rugombo, we have City Church Mugano, we have City Church Kabamba. Everyone likes the name City Church, right? It's pretty cool. And so this is Pastor Celestin. Pastor Celestin in the last political uh, turmoil that occurred in Burundi in late 2015 
Uh, he has to flee for his life to Western Tanzania. He ends up in a refugee camp with other Burundians and he's wrestling with the character of God. Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow people to try and kill his family? Why does he have to hide in this refugee camp? And while he's there, as he's praying and seeking the Lord and trying to have these uh, honest, intimate conversations with him, he feels Jesus speak to him and say, I want you to go back to Burundi, back to the village where you come from, and I want you to plant a church. So in 2020, he heads back across the border, um, I guess right before the uh, borders were closed, and shows up in Burundi, gets plugged in at the church planting school, goes through the church planting school, graduates in June of 2020, and goes to plant a church in the middle of a pandemic in July of 2020. Probably not the best time that you want to plant a church, but he does it. And God begins to bless. And what I didn't tell you about the story is that Celestin is a batois. You say, well, why is that significant? Because the Batois are the pygmies. They are the most marginalized people group in the nation of Burundi. There are less than 50,000 of them in the country. As of 10 years ago, there was not one known pygmy believer. Pastor Celestine goes back to his village and begins to announce the good news that there's now full access to Jesus Christ, no matter your social standing, no matter where you've been, no matter what other people may have said about you or didn't say about you. And as he begins to proclaim the name of Jesus and people start coming to know Christ, the church is birthed. November 7th, 2021, Bailey and I had the opportunity to stand up and share the word of God with our brothers and sisters in Yangungu, Burundi, where his church is. I remember that day because it was my 42nd birthday. With more than a hundred batois gathered in the room that day with their hands lifted up to heaven, worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I thought to myself, this is a global savior who opens up a means of access for every people group and for every nation and for every tribe and for every tongue. And today as we look towards this time of communion together, I, I would invite you just to take your uh, communion elements here at City Church, we believe that communion is open to everyone. If you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we believe this is an amazing opportunity and time for you to be able to do so. As we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus, as we remember what he did for us, as we remember what he's doing in Burundi, as we remember what he's doing in Congo, the cool news is that there's also direct access for you right for where you are today. No matter what you've been through, no matter what sin you may have committed, no matter what background or what people said about you, if you don't know Jesus today, this is an opportunity while we're doing this just to place your faith in Christ and say, Jesus, thank you. I believe and I receive. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, because I think this verse, these two verses help us frame the idea of communion. And so the word of God says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. Did you catch that? Because of his blood, we have confidence. Because of his body, there's a new and living way, the curtain. Do you see the parallelism that's going on? It's going right back to Matthew. And Matthew's saying, when the Son of Man died on the cross, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in half. And Matthew says, now it's not so much a temple. It's not so much a physical location in Jerusalem. It's that the body of Christ himself has now become the passageway. It has, if you will, become the curtain that you can now pass through to have access to the presence of Jesus. So if you will, would you take the body, the bread together? with me this morning.
Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us that has now opened up a new way to have access with God. We're grateful for it in Jesus' name. Would you also take the uh, juice, the blood of Christ, which now gives us confidence. Jesus, we're grateful today for your sacrifice. We're grateful for this series that we're in of Lent that leads us up to the incredible news of your resurrection. Lord, I pray for anyone in this place today that doesn't know you, that Lord, this would be a moment of reflection and of decision, that they would take that step to invite you to accomplish inside their heart what you already accomplished at the cross of Calvary. Lord, for those of us that are struggling with our presuppositions this morning, as we have taken communion and remind ourselves of what you've done for us, would you cleanse our minds? Would you cleanse our hearts? Would you help us to approach you as disciples, allowing you to speak for yourself, not trying to put words in your mouth or ideas in your mind of what we think would be best, but Lord, would you release the capacity within us to simply trust you and to follow after you with the place of obedience? We thank you, Lord. We love you. And all of God's people said, amen.